Welcome to the Theory to Action podcast, where we examine the timeless treasures of wisdom from the great books in less time to help you take action immediately and ultimately to create and lead a flourishing life. Now, here's your host, David Kaiser. Hello, I am David. Welcome back to another Mojo Minute. In keeping with our new tradition, let's jump right into our first pull quote. On September 18th, 1980, at 6.30 in the evening, Senior Airman David F. Powell and Airman Jeffrey L. Plum walked into the silo at Launch Complex 374-7, a few miles north of Damascus, Arkansas. They were planning to do a routine maintenance procedure on a Titan II missile. They had spent countless hours underground at complexes like this one. But no matter how many times they entered the silo, the Titan II always looked impressive. It was the largest intercontinental ballistic missile ever built by the United States, 10 feet in diameter, 103 feet tall, roughly the height of a nine-story building. It had an aluminum skin with a mate finish, and the U.S. Air Force painted in big letters down the side. The nose cone on the top of the Titan II was deep black, and inside inside sat a W-53 thermonuclear warhead, the most powerful weapon ever carried by an American missile. The warhead had yield, had a yield of nine megatons, about three times the explosive force of all the bombs dropped during the Second World War, including both atomic bombs. Day or night, winter or spring, the silo always felt the same. It was eerily quiet, and a mercury vapor lights on the walls bathed the missile in a bright white glow. When you opened the door on a lower level and stepped into the launch duct, the Titan II loomed over you like an immense black-tipped silver bullet loaded in a concrete gun barrel, primed, cocked, ready to go, and pointed at the sky. The missile was designed to launch within a minute and hit a target as far as 6,000 miles away. In order to do that, the Titan II relied upon a pair of liquid propellants, a rocket fuel, and an oxidizer that were hypergolic. The moment they came into contact with each other, they'd instantly and forcefully ignite. The missile had two stages, and inside both of them, an oxidizer tank rested on the top of a fuel tank, with pipes leading down to an engine. Stage one, which extended about 70 feet upward from the bottom of the missile, contained about 85,000 pounds of fuel and 163,000 pounds of oxidizer. Stage two, the upper section where the warhead sat, was smaller and held about one-fourth of those amounts. If the missile were launched, fuel and oxidizer would flow through stage one pipes, mix inside the combustion chambers of the engine, catch on fire and emit hot gases, and send almost half a million pounds of thrust through the supersonic convergent divergent nozzles beneath it. Within a few minutes, the Titan II would be 50 miles off the ground. And this wonderful quote comes to us from a book written by Eric Schlosser, titled Command and Control, Nuclear Weapons, the the Damascus 
Accident, and the Illusion of Safety. Fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And for now, let's go back to the story by going back to the book. Pow and Plum were missile repairmen. They belonged to Propellant Transfer System, Team A of the 308th Strategic Missile Wing, whose headquarters was about an hour away or so at Little Rock Air Force Base. They had been called to the site that day because of a warning light that had signaled that pressure was low in the Stage 2 oxidizer tank. If the pressure fell too low, the oxidizer wouldn't flow smoothly to the engine. A, quote, low light could mean a serious problem, a rupture, a leak. But it's far more likely that a slight change in the temperature had lowered the pressure inside the tank. Air conditioning units in the silo were supposed to keep the missile cooled to about 60 degrees. If Powell and Plum didn't find any leaks, they simply unscrew the cap on the oxidizer tank and add more nitrogen gas. The nitrogen maintained a steady pressure on the liquid inside, pushing downward. It was a simple, mundane task, like putting air in your tires before a long drive. Powell had served on the PTS team, that's the propellant transfer team, or the propellant transfer system. Powell had served on the PTS team for almost three years and knew the hazards of the Titan II. During his first visit to a launch complex, an oxidizer leak created a toxic cloud that shut down operations for three days. He was a 21-year-old proud hillbilly from rural Kentucky who loved the job and planned to re-enlist at the end of the year. Plum had been with the 308th for just nine months. He wasn't qualified to do this sort of missile maintenance or to handle these propellants. Accompanying Powell and watching everything that Powell did was what considered Plum that was considered Plum's OJT on his on-the-job training. Plum was 19 and raised in suburban Detroit. Okay, let's recap some of the facts of what is going on here. So at 6.30 p.m. on September 18th, the missile repairman discovered a possible fuel leak. But we have some very young men handling this nuclear weapon. And frankly, for that matter, working in and around nuclear warheads. So is the hair on the back of your neck standing up right now? Yes, this is all happening in 1980. So the military has had, by this time, over 30 years of dealing and working with nuclear material, uh, nuclear materials, right? If you listen to our last podcast, you'll know that we had an incident in the 1950s. And frankly, we've had many incidences throughout our whole time with nuclear weapons from the 1950s to the 1980s is the time period we're talking about now. So you would think there'd be some vast experience with these nuclear weapons, but for 19 and 20 year olds to be doing these types of jobs. Well, it seems to not be great oversight that all being said, let's go back to the book. The stage two oxidizer pressure cap was about two thirds of the way up the missile. In order to reach it, Pow and Plum had to walk across a retractable steel platform that extended from the silo wall. The tall, hollow cylinder in which the Titan II stood 
was enclosed by another concrete cylinder with nine interior levels, housing equipment. Level one was near the top of the missile, level nine about 20 feet beneath the missile. The steel work platforms folded down from the walls hydraulically. Each one had a stiff rubber edge to prevent the Titan II from getting scratched while keeping the gap between the platform and the missile as narrow as possible. The airmen entered the launch duct at level two. Far above their heads was a concrete silo door. It was supposed to protect the missile from the wind and the rain and the effects of a nuclear weapon detonating nearby. The door weighed 740 tons. Far below the men, beneath the Titan II, a concrete flame deflector shaped like a W was installed to guide the hot gases downward at launch, then upward through exhaust vents and out of the silo. The missile stood on a thrust mount, a steel ring at level 7, that weighed about 26,000 pounds. The thrust mount was attached to the walls by large springs so that the Titan II could ride out a nuclear attack, bounce instead of break, and then take off. In addition to the W-3 warhead, a few hundred thousand pounds of propellants, many other things in the silo, could detonate. Electro-explosive devices were used after ignition to free the missile from the thrust mount, separating Stage 2 from Stage 1, and release the nose cone. The missile also housed numerous small rocket engines with flammable solid fuel to adjust the pitch and the roll of the warhead mid-flight. The Titan II launch complex had been carefully designed to minimize the risk of having so many flammables and explosives within it. Fire detectors, fire suppression systems, toxic vapor detectors, and decontamination showers were scattered throughout the nine levels of the silo. These safety devices were bolstered by strict safety rules. Whenever a PTS team member put on a RFCO, RFHCO, he had to be accompanied by a someone else in a RFCO, with two other people waiting as backup, ready to put on their suits. Every Category 1 task had to be performed according to a standardized checklist, which the team chief usually read aloud over the radio communication network. There was one way to do everything, and only one way. Technical Order 21 m LGM 25C 2 12. Figure 218 told Powell and Plum exactly what to do as they stood on the platform near the missile. Step 4, the PTS team chief said over the radio Remove airborne disconnect pressure cap. Roger, Powell replied. Caution. When complying with step 4, do not exceed 164 pounds of torque. Over-torquing may result in damage to the missile skin. Roger. As Powell used a socket wrench to unscrew the pressure cap, the socket fell off. It struck the platform and bounced. Powell grabbed for it, but missed. Powell watched the nine-pound socket slip through the narrow gap between the platform and the missile, fall about 70 feet, hit the thrust mount, and then ricochet off the Titan II. It seemed to happen in slow motion. A moment later, fuel sprayed from a hole in the missile like water from a garden hose. Oh man, Plum thought, that is not good.
That is not good indeed. Like I said, this book is a fascinating look at how our U.S. military handles our nuclear arsenal. I would urge you to check it out. But to fast forward, early on the morning of Friday, September 19th, two men, Senior Airman David Lee Livingston and Sergeant Jeff Kennedy, entered the silo. They were part of the PTS investigative team to find out what was going on. And to make a long story short, these two were ordered back out of the silo because of the indicators going off that vapors were coming from the silo. Then the team was ordered back in to turn on an exhaust fan to help with pulling the vapors out of the silo. At roughly 3 a.m. on September 19th, roughly three hours later, around 6 a.m., a huge explosion rocked the complex, ejecting the warhead from the missile silo to some 100 feet away from the launch complex's entry gate. A hundred feet away. Crazy. The warhead thankfully landed, but there was no explosion. And more importantly, it did not release any radioactive material. The incident caused significant damage to the silo and surrounding area, and it could have been much, much worse if the warhead had detonated. Sadly, very sadly, Airman David Lee Livingston would later die at the hospital of his of injuries caused by the explosion. Sergeant Jeff Kennedy, unbelievably, was blown high in the air as well, but he landed against the chain link fence with his feet up in the air against the fence. Fortunately, he would live to tell this story, though he struggled with respiratory issues the rest of his life. Now, it was estimated that the WF-53 nuclear warhead had a yield of 9 megatons, which is around 600 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima during World War II. Now, following the incident, the Air Force launched an investigation into the cause of the explosion, which ultimately found that the accident was due to human error. They also discovered several issues with the design of the missile, including the use of a volatile oxidizer and the lack of proper safety measures. The Damascus Titan missile explosion is a stark reminder of the dangers associated with nuclear weapons and the importance of following strict safety protocols. It could have easily resulted in a catastrophic nuclear disaster. And it also highlights the importance of investing in proper technology and training for our personnel involved in handling these extremely dangerous weapons. And with military recruiting hitting the worst levels that we've ever seen in our volunteer force since 1973, this is becoming a much, much greater problem. So in today's Mojo Minute, the Damascus Titan missile explosion was a significant event that almost resulted in a nuclear catastrophe. Thankfully, the warhead did not release any radioactive material. But it does serve as a great reminder of the potential consequences of mishandling nuclear weapons. And with our military recruiting, which is in a deep, deep crisis, 
we currently need some real leadership from our military and our national leaders. Our country needs the best of its young men and women to serve. And sadly, our best young women and young men are looking at this military and saying, no, thank you. They don't want to be part of any of the U.S. military's social experiments. The Damascus incident and all broken arrow incidences will be a great reminder that we need young military members with great training to avoid these types of incidences and that to help detour any of our would-be aggressors. Let's hope our country and its young people get the national leadership they so richly deserve. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this Theory to Action podcast. Be sure to check out our show page at teammojoacademy.com where we have everything we discussed in this podcast as well as other great resources. Until next time, keep getting your mojo on. Are you a voracious reader who yearns for a deeper understanding of your favorite books? Or perhaps you're a busy professional seeking to enrich your knowledge, but short on time. The Mojo Academy 2.0 is your perfect solution. Our revamped service now includes beautifully designed monthly written reviews and PDF format to accompany our popular audio reviews. These aren't just summaries. These are comprehensive and insightful explorations of each book packed with the actual quotes from the book to enhance your understanding. With usually 69 pages per review, they are perfect reference tools to take your learning to the next level. Get your free Mojo Academy review in written format at teammojoacademy.com or click on today's show notes for that free link. Again, teammojoacademy.com or click on today's show notes and you will see the link for the free written review. Get yours today.